Section 12 of State of the Union Addresses, 1845-1848. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. James Polk, December 5, 1848, Part 3. The Condition and Operations of the Army and the state of other branches of the public service under the supervision of the War Department are satisfactorily presented in the accompanying report of the Secretary of War. On the return of peace, our forces were withdrawn from Mexico, and the volunteers and that portion of the regular army engaged for the war were disbanded. Orders have been issued for stationing the forces of our permanent establishment at various positions in our extended country where troops may be required. Owing to the remoteness of some of these positions, the detachments have not yet reached their destination. Notwithstanding the extension of the limits of our country and the forces required in the new territories, it is confidently believed that our present military establishment is sufficient for all exigencies so long as our peaceful relations remain undisturbed. Of the amount of military contributions collected in Mexico, the sum of $769,650 was applied toward the payment of the first installment due under the Treaty with Mexico. The further sum of $346,369.30 has been paid into the Treasury, and unexpended balances still remain in the hands of dispersing officers and those who were engaged in the collection of these monies. After the proclamation of peace, no further disbursements were made of any unexpended monies arising from this source. The balances on hand were directed to be paid into the Treasury, and individual claims on the fund will remain unadjusted until Congress shall authorize their settlement and payment. These claims are not considerable in number or amount. I recommend to your favorable consideration the suggestions of the Secretary of War and the Secretary of the Navy in regard to legislation on this subject. Our Indian relations are presented in a most favorable view in the report from the War Department. The wisdom of our policy in regard to the tribes within our limits is clearly manifested by their improved and rapidly improving condition. A most important treaty with the Menominees has been recently negotiated by the Commissioner of Indian Affairs in person, by which all their land in the state of Wisconsin, being about 4 million acres, has been ceded to the United States. This treaty will be submitted to the Senate for ratification at an early period of your present session. Within the last four years, eight important treaties have been negotiated with different Indian tribes, and at a cost of $1,842,000, Indian lands to the amount of more than 18,500,000 acres have been ceded to the United States, and provision has been made for settling in the country west of the Mississippi the tribes which occupied this large extent of the public domain. The title to all the Indian lands within the several states of our Union, with the exception of a few small reservations, is now extinguished, and a vast region opened for settlement and cultivation. The accompanying report of the Secretary of the Navy gives a satisfactory exhibit of the operations and condition of that branch of the public service. A number of small vessels, suitable for entering the mouths of rivers, were judiciously purchased during the war 
and gave great efficiency to this squadron in the Gulf of Mexico. On the return of peace, when no longer valuable for naval purposes, and liable to constant deterioration, they were sold and the money placed in the treasury. The number of men in the naval service authorized by law during the war has been reduced by discharges below the maximum fixed for the peace establishment. Adequate squadrons are maintained in the several quarters of the globe where experience has shown their services may be most usefully employed, and the naval service was never in a condition of higher discipline or greater efficiency. I invite attention to the recommendation of the Secretary of the Navy on the subject of the Marine Corps. The reduction of the Corps at the end of the war required that four officers of each of the three lower grades should be dropped from the rolls. A board of officers made the selection, and those designated were necessarily dismissed, but without any alleged fault. I concur in opinion with the Secretary that the service would be improved by reducing the number of landsmen and increasing the Marines. Such a measure would justify an increase of the number of officers to the extent of the reduction by dismissal, and still the Corps would have fewer officers than a corresponding number of men in the Army. The contracts for the transportation of the mail and steamships, convertible into war steamers, promised to realize all the benefits to our commerce and to the Navy which were anticipated. The first steamer thus secured to the government was launched in January 1847. There are now seven, and in another year there will probably be not less than seventeen afloat. While this great national advantage is secured, our social and commercial intercourse is increased and promoted with Germany, Great Britain, and other parts of Europe, with all the countries on the west coast of our continent, especially with Oregon and California, and between the northern and southern sections of the United States. Considerable revenue may be expected from postages, but the connected line from New York to Chagres and thence across the Isthmus to Oregon cannot fail to exert a beneficial influence, not now to be estimated, on the interests of the manufactures, commerce, navigation, and currency of the United States. As an important part of the system, I recommend to your favorable consideration the establishment of the proposed line of steamers between New Orleans and Veracruz. It promises the most happy results in cementing friendship between the two republics and extending reciprocal benefits to the trade and manufactures of both. The report of the Postmaster General will make known to you the operations of that department for the past year. It is gratifying to find the revenues of the department, under the rates of postage now established by law, so rapidly increasing. The gross amount of postages during the last fiscal year amounted to $4,371,077, exceeding the annual average received for the nine years immediately preceding the passage of the Act of the 3rd of March, 1845, by the sum of $6,453, and exceeding the amount received for the year ending the 30th of June, 1847, by the sum of $425,184. The expenditures for the year, excluding the sum of $94,672, allowed by Congress at its last session to individual claimants, and including the sum of $100,500 paid for the services of the line of steamers between Bremen and New York, amounted to $4,198,845.
which is less than the annual average for the nine years previous to the Act of 1845, by $300,748. The mail routes on the 30th day of June last were 163,208 miles in extent, being an increase during the last year of 9,390 miles. The mails were transported over them during the same time 41,012,579 miles, making an increase of transportation for the year of 2,124,680 miles, whilst the expense was less than that of the previous year by $4,235. The increase in the mail transportation within the last three years has been 5,378,310 miles, whilst the expenses were reduced $456,738, making an increase of service at the rate of 15% and a reduction in the expenses of more than 15%. During the past year, there have been employed, under contracts with the Post Office Department, two ocean steamers in conveying the mails monthly between New York and Bremen, and one, since October last, performing semi-monthly service between Charleston and Havana, and a contract has been made for the transportation of the Pacific mails across the Isthmus from Chagres to Panama. Under the authority given to the Secretary of the Navy, three ocean steamers have been constructed and sent to the Pacific, and are expected to enter upon the mail service between Panama and Oregon, and the intermediate ports on the 1st of January next, and a fourth has been engaged by him for the service between Havana and Chagres, so that a regular monthly mail line will be kept up after that time between the United States and our territories on the Pacific. Notwithstanding this great increase in the mail service, should the revenue continue to increase the present year as it did in the last, there will be received near $450,000 more than the expenditures. These considerations have satisfied the Postmaster General that with certain modifications of the Act of 1845, the revenue may be still further increased and a reduction of postages made to a uniform rate of five cents, without an interference with the principle, which has been constantly and properly enforced, of making that department sustain itself. A well-digested cheap postage system is the best means of diffusing intelligence among the people, and is of so much importance in a country so extensive as that of the United States that I recommend to your favorable consideration the suggestions of the Postmaster General for its improvement. Nothing can retard the onward progress of our country and prevent us from assuming and maintaining the first rank among nations but a disregard of the experience of the past and a recurrence to an unwise public policy. We have just closed a foreign war by an honorable peace a war rendered necessary and unavoidable in vindication of the national rights and honor. The present condition of the country is similar in some respects to that which existed immediately after the close of the war with Great Britain in 1815, and the occasion is deemed to be a proper one to take a retrospect of the measures of public policy which followed that war. There was at that period of our history a departure from our earlier policy the enlargement of the powers of the federal government by construction, which obtained, was not warranted by any just interpretation of the Constitution. A few years after the close of that war, a series of measures was adopted which, united and combined, constituted what was termed by their authors and advocates the American system. 
The introduction of the new policy was for a time favored by the condition of the country, by the heavy debt which had been contracted during the war, by the depression of the public credit, by the deranged state of the finances and the currency, and by the commercial and pecuniary embarrassment which extensively prevailed. These were not the only causes which led to its establishment. The events of the war with Great Britain and the embarrassments which had attended its prosecution had left on the minds of many of our statesmen the impression that our government was not strong enough, and that to wield its resources successfully in great emergencies, and especially in war, more power should be concentrated in its hands. This increased power they did not seek to obtain by the legitimate and prescribed mode, an amendment of the Constitution, but by construction. They saw governments in the old world based upon different orders of society, and so constituted as to throw the whole power of nations into the hands of a few, who taxed and controlled the many without responsibility or restraint. In that arrangement, they conceived the strength of nations in war consisted. There was also something fascinating in the ease, luxury, and display of the higher orders, who drew their wealth from the toil of the laboring millions. The authors of the system drew their ideas of political economy from what they had witnessed in Europe and particularly in Great Britain. They had viewed the enormous wealth concentrated in few hands and had seen the splendor of the overgrown establishments of an aristocracy which was upheld by the restrictive policy. They forgot to look down upon the poorer classes of the English population, upon whose daily and yearly labor the great establishments they so much admired were sustained and supported. They failed to perceive that the scantily fed and half-clad operatives were not only in abject poverty, but were bound in chains of oppressive servitude for the benefit of the favored classes who were the exclusive objects of the care of the government. It was not possible to reconstruct society in the United States upon the European plan. Here there was a written constitution by which orders and titles were not recognized or tolerated. A system of measures was therefore devised, calculated, if not intended, to withdraw power gradually and silently from the states and the mass of the people, and by construction to approximate our government to the European models, substituting an aristocracy of wealth for that of orders and titles. Without reflecting upon the dissimilarity of our institutions and of the condition of our people and those of Europe, they conceived the vain idea of building up in the United States a system similar to that which they admired abroad. Great Britain had a national bank of large capital, in whose hands was concentrated the controlling monetary and financial power of the nation, an institution wielding almost kingly power and exerting vast influence upon all the operations of trade and upon the policy of the government itself. Great Britain had an enormous public debt, and it had become a part of her public policy to regard this as a public blessing. Great Britain had also a restrictive policy, which placed fetters and burdens on trade and trammeled the productive industry of the mass of the nation. By her combined system of policy, the landlords and other property holders were protected and enriched by the enormous taxes which were levied upon the labor of the country for their advantage. Imitating this foreign policy, the first step in establishing the new system in the United States was the creation of a national bank. Not foreseeing the dangerous power and countless evils which such an institution might entail on the country, nor perceiving the connection 
which it was designed to form between the bank and the other branches of the miscalled American system. But feeling the embarrassments of the Treasury and of the business of the country consequent upon the war, some of our statesmen, who had held different and sounder views, were induced to yield their scruples and, indeed, settled convictions of its unconstitutionality, and to give it their sanction as an expedient which they vainly hoped might produce relief. It was a most unfortunate error, as the subsequent history and final catastrophe of that dangerous and corrupt institution have abundantly proved. The bank, with its numerous branches ramified into the states, soon brought many of the active political and commercial men in different sections of the country into the relation of debtors to it and dependents upon it for pecuniary favors, thus diffusing throughout the mass of society a great number of individuals of power and influence to give tone to public opinion and to act in concert in cases of emergency. The corrupt power of such a political engine is no longer a matter of speculation, having been displayed in numerous instances, but most signally in the political struggles of 1832, 1833, and 1834, in opposition to the public will represented by a fearless and patriotic president. But the bank was but one branch of the new system. A public debt of more than $120 million existed, and it is not to be disguised that many of the authors of the new system did not regard its speedy payment as essential to the public prosperity but looked upon its continuance as no national evil. Whilst the debt existed, it furnished aliment to the National Bank and rendered increased taxation necessary to the amount of the interest, exceeding $7 million annually. This operated in harmony with the next branch of the new system, which was a high protective tariff. This was to afford bounties to favored classes and particular pursuits at the expense of all others. A proposition to tax the whole people for the purpose of enriching a few was too monstrous to be openly made. The scheme was therefore veiled under the plausible but delusive pretext of a measure to protect home industry, and many of our people were for a time led to believe that a tax which in the main fell upon labor was for the benefit of the laborer who paid it. This branch of the system involved a partnership between the government and the favored classes, the former receiving the proceeds of the tax imposed on articles imported, and the latter the increased price of similar articles produced at home caused by such tax. It is obvious that the portion to be received by the favored classes would, as a general rule, be increased in proportion to the increase of the rates of tax imposed, and diminished as those rates were reduced to the revenue standard required by the wants of the government. The rates required to produce a sufficient revenue for the ordinary expenditures of government for necessary purposes were not likely to give to the private partners in this scheme profits sufficient to satisfy their cupidity. And hence, a variety of expedients and pretexts were resorted to for the purpose of enlarging the expenditures and thereby creating a necessity for keeping up a high protective tariff. The effect of this policy was to interpose artificial restrictions upon the natural course of the business and trade of the country, and to advance the interests of large capitalists and monopolists at the expense of the great mass of the people, who were taxed to increase their wealth. Another branch of this system was a comprehensive scheme of internal improvements, capable of indefinite enlargement, 
and sufficient to swallow up as many millions annually as could be exacted from the foreign commerce of the country. This was a convenient and necessary adjunct of the protective tariff. It was to be the great absorbent of any surplus which might at any time accumulate in the treasury, and of the taxes levied on the people, not for necessary revenue purposes, but for the avowed object of affording protection to the favored classes. Auxiliary to the same end, if it was not an essential part of the system itself, was the scheme which at a later period obtained for distributing the proceeds of the sales of the public lands among the states. Other expedients were devised to take money out of the treasury and prevent its coming in from any other source than the protective tariff. The authors and supporters of the system were the advocates of the largest expenditures, whether for necessary or useful purposes or not, because the larger the expenditures, the greater was the pretext for high taxes in the form of protective duties. These several measures were sustained by popular names and plausible arguments, by which thousands were deluded. The bank was represented to be an indispensable fiscal agent for the government, was to equalize exchanges, and to regulate and furnish a sound currency, always and everywhere of uniform value. The protective tariff was to give employment to American labor at advanced prices, was to protect home industry, and furnish a steady market for the farmer. Internal improvements were to bring trade into every neighborhood and enhance the value of every man's property. The distribution of the land money was to enrich the states, finish their public works, plant schools throughout their borders, and relieve them from taxation. But the fact that for every dollar taken out of the treasury for these objects, a much larger sum was transferred from the pockets of the people to the favored classes was carefully concealed, as was also the tendency, if not the ultimate design, of the system to build up an aristocracy of wealth, to control the masses of society, and monopolize the political power of the country. The several branches of this system were so intimately blended together that in their operation each sustained and strengthened the others. Their joint operation was to add new burthens of taxation, and to encourage a largely increased and wasteful expenditure of public money. It was the interest of the bank that the revenue collected and the disbursements made by the government should be large, because, being the depository of the public money, the larger the amount, the greater would be the bank profits by its use. It was the interest of the favored classes, who were enriched by the protective tariff, to have the rates of that protection as high as possible, for the higher those rates, the greater would be their advantage. It was the interest of the people of all those sections and localities who expected to be benefited by expenditures for internal improvements, that the amount collected should be as large as possible, to the end that the sum dispersed might also be the larger. The states, being the beneficiaries in the distribution of the land money, had an interest in having the rates of tax imposed by the protective tariff large enough to yield a sufficient revenue from that source to meet the wants of the government, without disturbing or taking from them the land fund, so that each of the branches constituting the system had a common interest in swelling the public expenditures. They had a direct interest in maintaining the public debt unpaid and increasing its amount, because this would produce an annual increased drain upon the treasury, to the amount of the interest, and render augmented taxes necessary. The operation and necessary effect of the whole system 
were to encourage large and extravagant expenditures and thereby to increase the public patronage and maintain a rich and splendid government at the expense of a taxed and impoverished people it is manifest that this scheme of enlarged taxation and expenditures had it continued to prevail must soon have converted the government of the union intended by its framers to be a plain cheap and simple confederation of states united together for common protection and charged with a few specific duties relating chiefly to our foreign affairs into a consolidated empire depriving the states of their reserved rights and the people of their just power and control in the administration of their government in this manner the whole form and character of the government would be changed not by an amendment of the constitution but by resorting to an unwarrantable and unauthorized construction of that instrument the indirect mode of levying the taxes by a duty on imports prevents the mass of the people from readily perceiving the amount they pay and has enabled the few who are thus enriched and who seek to wield the political power of the country to deceive and delude them were the taxes collected by a direct levy upon the people as is the case in the states this could not occur the whole system was resisted from its inception by many of our ablest statesmen some of whom doubted its constitutionality and its expediency while others believed it was in all its branches a flagrant and dangerous infraction of the constitution that a national bank a protective tariff levied not to raise the revenue needed but for protection merely internal improvements and the distribution of the proceeds of the sale of the public lands are measures without the warrant of the constitution would upon the maturest consideration seem to be clear it is remarkable that no one of these measures involving such momentous consequences is authorized by any express grant of power in the constitution not one of them is incident to as being necessary and proper for the execution of the specific powers granted by the constitution the authority under which it has been attempted to justify each of them is derived from inferences and constructions of the constitution which its letter and its whole object and design do not warrant is it to be conceived that such immense powers would have been left by the framers of the constitution to mere inferences and doubtful constructions had it been intended to confer them on the federal government it is but reasonable to conclude that it would have been done by plain and unequivocal grants this was not done but the whole structure of which the american system consisted was reared on no other or better foundation than forced implications and inferences of power which its authors assumed might be deduced by construction from the constitution but it has been urged that the national bank which constituted so essential a branch of this combined system of measures was not a new measure and that its constitutionality had been previously sanctioned because a bank had been chartered in seventeen ninety one and had received the official signature of president washington a few facts will show the just weight to which this precedent should be entitled as bearing upon the question of constitutionality great division of opinion upon the subject existed in congress it is well known that president washington entertained serious doubts both as to the constitutionality and expediency of the measure and while the bill was before him for his official approval or disapproval so great were these doubts that he required the opinion in writing of the members of his cabinet to aid him in arriving at a decision his cabinet gave their opinions and were divided upon the subject general hamilton being in favor of 
and mr jefferson and mr randolph being opposed to the constitutionality and expediency of the bank it is well known also that president washington retained the bill from monday the fourteenth when it was presented to him until friday the twenty fifth of february being the last moment permitted him by the constitution to deliberate when he finally yielded to it his reluctant assent and gave it his signature it is certain that as late as the twenty third of february being the ninth day after the bill was presented to him he had arrived at no satisfactory conclusion for on that day he addressed a note to general hamilton in which he informs him that this bill was presented to me by the joint committee of congress at twelve o'clock on monday the fourteenth instant and he requested his opinion to what precise period by legal interpretation of the constitution can the president retain it in his possession before it becomes a law by the lapse of ten days if the proper construction was that the day on which the bill was presented to the president and the day on which his action was had upon it were both counted to be inclusive then the time allowed him within which it would be competent for him to return it to the house in which it originated with his objections would expire on thursday the twenty fourth of february general hamilton on the same day returned an answer in which he states i give it as my opinion that you have ten days exclusive of that on which the bill was delivered to you and sundays hence in the present case if it is returned on friday it will be in time by this construction which the president adopted he gained another day for deliberation and it was not until the twenty fifth of february that he signed the bill thus affording conclusive proof that he had at last obtained his own consent to sign it not without great and almost insuperable difficulty additional light has been recently shed upon the serious doubts which he had on the subject amounting at one time to a conviction that it was his duty to withhold his approval from the bill this is found among the manuscript papers of mr madison authorized to be purchased for the use of the government by an act of the last session of congress and now for the first time accessible to the public from these papers it appears that president washington while he yet held the bank bill in his hands actually requested mr madison at that time a member of the house of representatives to prepare the draft of a veto message for him mr madison at his request did prepare the draft of such a message and sent it to him on the twenty first of february seventeen ninety one a copy of this original draft in mr madison's own handwriting was carefully preserved by him and is among the papers lately purchased by congress it is preceded by a note written on the same sheet which is also in mr madison's handwriting and is as follows february twenty first seventeen ninety one copy of a paper made out and sent to the president at his request to be ready in case his judgment should finally decide against the bill for incorporating a national bank the bill being then before him among the objections assigned in this paper to the bill and which were submitted for the consideration of the president are the following i object to the bill because it is an essential principle of the government that powers not delegated by the constitution cannot be rightfully exercised because the power proposed by the bill to be exercised is not expressly delegated and because i cannot satisfy myself that it results from any express power by fair and safe rules of interpretation the weight of the president of the bank of seventeen ninety one and the sanction of the great name of washington which has been so often invoked in its support are greatly weakened by the development of these facts 
the experiment of that bank satisfied the country that it ought not to be continued and at the end of twenty years congress refused to recharter it it would have been fortunate for the country and saved thousands from bankruptcy and ruin had our public men of eighteen sixteen resisted the temporary pressure of the times upon our financial and pecuniary interests and refused to charter the second bank of this the country became abundantly satisfied and at the close of its twenty years duration as in the case of the first bank it also ceased to exist under the repeated blows of president jackson it reeled and fell and a subsequent attempt to charter a similar institution was arrested by the veto of president tyler mr madison in yielding his signature to the charter of eighteen sixteen did so upon the ground of the respect due to precedence and as he subsequently declared the bank of the united states though on the original question held to be unconstitutional received the executive signature it is probable that neither the bank of seventeen ninety one nor that of eighteen sixteen would have been chartered but for the embarrassments of the government in its finances the derangement of the currency and the pecuniary pressure which existed the first the consequence of the war of the revolution and the second the consequence of the war of eighteen twelve both were resorted to in the delusive hope that they would restore public credit and afford relief to the government and to the business of the country end of section twelve Recording by Colleen McMahon